don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit like... Uh... Hello, welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 45, and today we're doing uh, something we're calling 90s Amish Paradise, which is kind of an extension of this this sort of mini mini project that we started with the last episode which was the reality smashers and in this one we're going to be looking specifically at kingpin from 1996 for richer or poorer from 1994 or sorry 1997 and uh weird al's amish paradise probably took kind of a lesser extent also from uh 96 and once again this was kind of you're kind of the mastermind of this project and I, I've been thinking about it and sort of jotting down some notes about it but what, what makes you want uh, to talk about this what makes this worth mentioning yeah I uh, like like you said it's kind of an extension of the idea of the late 90s reality smashers where uh, you know and maybe this is just a, tr- uh, a general storytelling trope but what I notice is in those late '90s movies, the, uh, the filmmakers sort of posit an authentic world against which to measure the, you know, the kind of the status quo. Um, and the late, you know, Truman Show, Pleasantville, The Matrix, those types of movies do it in a kind of obvious way, where there's like literally a separate realm to escape to. Um, but I think I think a good place to start uh, talking today is just in imagining. You know, uh, take the Matrix for instance. You have the Matrix and the real world. Um, imagine in say for richer or poorer, uh, the you know New York City where the characters start is the Matrix, and then the Amish village, Intercourse, Pennsylvania, nice um, is. is the real world Um, so so constantly movies are are um, positing a more authentic uh, more in tune with reality with nature um, you know a culture more in tune with nature and and yet in, in so many movies it's it's used in a lot of ways either to you know, simply as a source of humor, ha ha ha, look at these people in their simple ways, or more often to sort of siphon the vitality of the supposed authentic world to basically to make their life back in uh, the mainstream, you know, back in New York City, bearable, less desperate, terrible. Uh, this This also came about from talking to Jensi, who's writing her dissertation on sort of uh, 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 I want to say like pockets of nature, like like parks and things, the way nature is used in cities. Mm-hmm. And it's it, it's it's like these movies sort of have a similar relationship uh, or they show characters who have a similar relationship to an authentic world that that we have to say national parks which is something we've talked about uh, a lot i think on the show where uh, you know the uh, 
there's like like the idea behind a national park is that there's just enough sacred to like sanction the uh prodigious profane uh, that that just allows us to go on with our life as it is uh, and so it it has this sort of i think we've used the term vampiric uh on the show before a vampiric sort of orientation if i could get a little uh a little uh academic and shitty here I'll, i'd like to coin the term timonosferatu which is a combination of the phrase timonos which means like a sacred space and uh uh nosferatu the vampire you heard it here <laughs> first folks <laughs> timonosferatu uh, timonosferatu the vampire who is uh you know sucking the blood of the sacred space to to survive <laughs> that that's like no I, I i like that that's like a almost like a timothy morton kind of thing that he would come up with yeah. <laughs> um that's tim and nosferatu I'm, I'm gonna write that down real fast <laughs> cool it <laughs> um which which seem, maybe seems a little far afield, but the, the basic notion is that these movies posit an authentic world mm-hmm. that our our heroes must go into to uh, you know to better their shitty world. Yeah, and I, I like the way that you set that up because it's kind of what I was thinking uh, about. But I was thinking about it in terms of uh, moral superiority. This kind of like mm-hmm. elevated morality that you get or that you. Uh, supposedly a get a get what supposedly get when you go into a, a, an Amish community and it, it, you see it play out differently in, in these two films. So in Kingpin, it's kind of played for laughs in a lot of ways where, uh, you know, he's a, I can't remember the name of the character as I'm about to say it. Um, Ishmael. Ishmael. Yeah. Ishmael is always like, we do everything you do, but then plus a half, uh, right. that kind of right. thing where it's like you don't work hard enough you don't have the right morality all this sort of stuff. and it, it's played for laughs there because then we see him like you know smoking cigarettes and and hitting mm-hmm. a bong and like getting a big tattoo on his back and all, all this sort of goofy <laughs> stuff um but then in for richer or poorer you know we'll talk more about about both of these you see it like it kind of becomes you're, you're given this this feeling that like oh no the amish have it right and, you know, we have a lot to learn. It's like a weirdly sincere kind of acceptance of like, okay, what they're doing here makes a lot of sense and it doesn't work for me, you know, it necessarily. But yeah, speaking I mean, from like Tim the, Allen's the movie, point of view. For Rich Poor, as an entertainment is awful. It's just like, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, it's, yeah. Let's it's start not there. funny. <laughs> and Kingpin but, is actually like not as good <laughs> as I thought it was when I was 11 or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I remember because we remember that night we watched Dumb and Dumber mm-hmm. and we all just laughed our asses off, you know, because uh, Jensi had never seen it. And we're like, OK, we're going to do another like Fairly Brothers night. And I think we were setting up Kingpin. And I'm glad we did not because that movie is not very funny. No, uh, Dumb and Dumber holds up perfectly. Great movie. Yeah. Yeah. Comedic masterpiece. Yeah. It's sort of it's so Dumb and Dumber does a good job of like um uh, like encapsulating the gags within a, a story mm-hmm. where Kingpin just sort of moves from gag to gag. Um, yeah. Without, you know, where there's no real 
uh, it's almost like a glue to it yeah it's like a like a family guy sort of comedy where you have weird things that don't seem to matter very much except for to be a funny image um, it, it felt more like the the sequel the fairly made to dumb and dumber which was not good yes. but it had that sort of uh inconsistent kind of inco- not incoherent but uh just not cohesive structure yeah that sequel to dumb and dumber is incoherent and like awful uh kingpin's not that but it's just there were some parts that were kind of like cringeworthy now um you know there's still some some i think legitimately funny bits but for richer or poorer is just a bad movie that was a vehicle But i will say what what got me started on that was there's a moment that was genuinely thoughtful um in for richer or poor when Tim Allen's character is talking to the uh, J. O. Sanders, whatever the main old, old know, jerk off Sanders. Uh, he basically makes this very sincere speech where he says, "You know, people think the Amish are like hiding from reality," but and he says this as they're like farming, you know, like in the field. Mm-hmm. But he says, "You know, it's the opposite. Yeah, the this people is in the, the city are are hiding from reality." Yeah. And 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 I think that sort of speaks to to our theory here about, you know, real world, you know, authentic world, that sort of thing. Um, but there, it's objectively true because, I mean, you think about how much the, you know, the life in the city depends upon agriculture and how distant, you know, city dwellers are from agriculture. Um not only geographically, but kind of psychologically, you just don't even think about it when you eat your, your McSalad shaker, you know, um, <laughs> since those are still things, your, but, but the, I, the idea that the idea that a local community, you know, that is, uh, intentional about its technology use, uh, and, you know, agrarian based, is hiding from reality. Whereas people who live in, you know, modern, uh, mega cities are in reality is a very strange assumption and a thoughtful comment the movie makes. Yeah. And I agree. And, and there's a lot of that sort of, especially on And it's, it's one of those stories where Tim Allen's character sort of accepts it accepts that way of life as a valid way of life kind of far before Christy Alley's character does. Um, mm-hmm. I was just thinking of, of how funny it would be that if uh, Amish culture was the counterculture that teenagers got into instead of like hippie culture or punk culture. <laughs> so they start dressing in like all black with the hat. Um, it's coming. And they, they're like, give their phone back to their parents. It's like, I will not live by your English ways. Um <laughs> Uh, so uh, you were mentioning, you were talking about national parks and landscape and stuff, and this is kind of an aside and then I'll, I'll shut up and come back to the movies. But I started listening to the, uh, audio book of James Howard Kunstler's geography of nowhere. Oh, hell yeah. And I really like it so far. I just finished the part when he's talking about, uh, modernist and postmodernist architecture. And I love how he's just like shitting on these giants of architecture talks about like La Cabousier as being this just like idiot asshole guy that doesn't know what he's talking about well and and he it seems like his main criticism is how of the times they are they're like they're 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 caught up in a moment you know Mm -hmm. um and they can't see 
the the temporality of their vision and and how it's not sustainable and and all those things. Uh, Have you read the chapter on Disney World? Or maybe it's Disneyland. No, I haven't got there yet. Oh, Uh, my God. It's amazing. I did love the part of of him talking about how uh, a lot of the sort of modern, you know, concrete box architecture, flat roof sort of stuff is was basically like the Germans admired it in American architecture. And then the Germans, you know, those architects come here uh, because of World War Two and then they sort of blow up and become famous and so that becomes the style that everyone is is working under and it's meant to be or they mean for it to be this kind of like socialist utopian kind of architecture but it ends up just being the symbol of corporate oppression <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and greed and everything else um, yeah he hilarious. he's in a he gives a ted talk that's really good called how bad architecture wrecked cities and he's reading this building i think it's like a boston municipal building or something and he calls it a dvd player (laughs) he says this building was designed with all the you know creativity of a of a dvd player and he points to like the entrance as like the uh you know where you put the disc in and then the window and there's like one window in the back and that's the audio jack and 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 how just utterly functional and bland and spiritless, uh, you know, just basic, uh, architecture that, that even in its basicness, you know, costs millions and millions of dollars to, mm-hmm. you know, to make these buildings. We're spending all this money to make cities ugly and boring. I, I would love to hear his thoughts on college campuses and how now mm. it's like a race to see who can build the most brick buildings with large windows. Like that's I would just love for, for James to... Howard Kunstler to come to middle Tennessee state university. And, uh, I mean, even I'm, you know, a, a an amateur, uh, student of architecture and even I know it's fucked up. Like it's a, uh, basically it's a mall. Any <laughs> new building they build is like meant to approximate, a, a, a 90s mall I like, mean, the, like the food court tell me that's not straight out of i mean that's 1996. what administrators love i think the way that they think about universities is a shopping mall for knowledge but yeah. only very specific brands of knowledge like you know business education <laughs> certain yeah. kinds of engineering that sort of stuff um anyway back to back to these movies i just wanted to, to share that real fast yeah james um, howard kunstler Check him out. Yeah, Check out sure. that uh, that uh, TED Talk, How Bad Architecture Wrecks Cities. It's what, several years old, it, but it's really was good. Was it an article or something that he had that was Why America is So Fucking Ugly? Yeah. Yeah. I think that was a Rolling Stone article. I think maybe they changed the name. Hmm. I, I think I heard about that. He is interviewed at the end of Curtis White's book, The Spirit of Disobedience, which is also a fantastic book. Uh, and he's he's – telling the story of that article that I think was originally titled uh, why America is so fucking ugly. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm sure we've talked about him before, but plug yeah. him again. Uh, but so these movies and we can just sort of like, I, I don't know if it matters if we sort of do one and then the other. So we can just kind of talk about them simultaneously, I guess. But I was thinking about them in the terms of other kinds of, of, 
sort of countercultural communities because that's kind of what the Amish are. Uh, that's what they were when they were founded. They were counter in their sort of Protestant specific Anabaptist beliefs and all that sort of stuff. And they're still very much countercultural, but we usually think of counterculture as like hippie culture or like new age culture, that sort of stuff, crystals. And it, and Im- stuff. it implies a sort of looser morality as yes. opposed to a more rigid morality. A, a looser morality that is explained as being a more elevated kind of morality, which mm-hmm. is also sort of what the Amish are doing, but in the reverse way by being more sort of conservative and, and basing it on a more kind of like a non-religious belief instead of whatever you would say the other ones are basing um, themselves on. Uh, but there's this kind of American, it, it, not purely American, but for the, the the sake of what we're talking about, this American obsession with alternative ways of life that I think is sort of indicative of a lot of things. Like for one, the cookie cutter, like mainstream American life is pretty kind of boring and stupid and frustrating and alienating in a lot of ways. So it's fun at the very least to look at these alternative forms of life, if not try to adopt them. Um, and usually you see things like, we've talked about this movie a lot, weirdly, even though we've never done it, but, uh, uh, Wonderlust and like those kinds of movies where they go and live with a very different kind of for, counterculture. For Richer or Poor and Wanderlust are definitely very similar movies. Yeah. But usually it's the like, cu- you we know, need the to couple go. stumbles upon the counterculture and slowly is, you know, uh, becomes part of it and drama ensues and they have to leave and then they they siphon its vitality to to uh make their more mainstream life slightly better yeah and it's funny to use the word vitality because when you think about like in wonderlust or another uh, movies like it you have this kind of the vitality comes from being outside of society and having this like different relationship to each other and to land and more communal and with the Amish it's still communal and has a different relationship with the land and all that but you know vitality is not I think a word most people would would associate with it just because by comparison or in comparison to you know other ways of living in America it it's very seems drab in color and that's something that the movie mentions in the the clothing and Christianity's character trying to make the dresses more colorful and stuff like that. Um, but just like the color and sort of the religious devotion and the, the sort of not using any technology and all dressing very plainly and being very just sort of plain in general. Um, even though there is, it's a very sort of rich tradition and it's an incredibly strong tradition. Um, but it's not really thought of in the terms of, of vitality, but in for richer or poor, that's definitely something that by the end of the film, both of the main characters are sort of saying, you know, we got a lot out of this and we can take this back and live more ethically than we were before. Yeah. And, and another trope of these movies is that, um, the counterculture that is, you know, in some ways perceived as more authentic, also, you know, is not perfect and has a little bit to learn from the mainstream culture. Uh, the same way, uh, I guess her name's Jenny in Pleasantville, like stays behind in Pleasantville because yes. she's into D.H. Lawrence now. Uh, it's similar to, to the way Kirstie Alley is like, you know, uh, bringing colors to the wardrobe of the Amish 
And you could even make the connection of like, you know, Pleasantville, you know, the people turn color and Kirstie Alley is like making these clothes literally uh, more colorful. Uh, so there's this kind of old traditional way um, that needs to be that is that is. Um, you know, it gets a little complicated because in, in Pleasantville, it's it's mostly, you know, the uh, the main characters who are teaching Pleasantville better ways of living. Whereas in For Richer or Poor, the traditional culture is the Amish um, teaching the main street, you know, the main characters. Uh, a better way of living so it's in a way it's kind of reversed but there are similar dynamics between the characters yeah definitely and even in in kingpin to a, a kind of lesser extent um because in that it kind of it, i don't know that the same kind of balance is, isn't really struck but at the end you do have you know uh you know, Roy and, uh, going to the, the Amish and being like, Oh, I learned a lot from Ishmael. And he, he got me off the, the booze and off the women and all this sort of stuff. Um, and, and you know, he's lying, but, but, right. but he does have this sort of like his life has changed for the better because of his interaction with, with Ishmael and with, uh, Claudia and, and all that stuff. Um, to but, me, to me, it seems totally arbitrary though. Like, Oh, definitely. Yeah like the the inclusion of amish in that movie it's like i thought it was going to be more important to the story but it's like it in a way it's sort of cynical like it's just it's just like oh this is funny the amish just in including the amish is funny <laughs> yeah seems seems to be the assumption of the movie the same way uh you know the weird al video it's like Oh, this is funny to compare, you know, to to take a, a form like rap that is so modern and rap about a traditional kind of community is just intrinsically funny. And that he can assume that is very interesting. The same way in Wanderlust, the the filmmakers can just take for granted that like you know sort of hippie type people living in community and you know working together is just like it's just funny to the general american public yeah um in it, 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 it does seem sort of you know superfluous and and even in the the plot of the film which you know it's it's a fairly brothers movie so the plot's fairly uh <laughs> fairly convoluted um <laughs> So, you know, Roy grows up in Iowa and then all of a sudden he's in Scranton, Pennsylvania. And, you know, it doesn't really, there's no reason for, I don't know. It's, it, it does seem sort of like weird that why, why have him grow up in Iowa? Why not just have him grow up in Pennsylvania? And it, you could still do the same generic, you know, small town, middle America sort of thing that, that yeah. you do at the beginning anyway. Um, but you know what? I, I, don't know. I noticed that, uh, this movie was not written by the Farrelly brothers. <laughs> which is, is they usually write their stuff right yeah yeah i i can't think of another movie that they did not write other than uh the heartbreak kid but I, they still adapted it you know from mm -hmm. from uh was it neil simon but uh yeah i noticed that there's like they, they're just the directors on this one so that might account for the some of the 
you know, discrepancies between this and their other films. Yeah. Um, and did you notice that this is kind of neither here nor there, but all the cameos in Kingpin? Roger Clemens? Roger Clemens. Jonathan Richman from Modern Lovers. Jonathan Richman's in a bunch of their movies. He's like, he's in, uh, there's something about Mary. He's like, you know, he sings several songs, like very, very conspicuously. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I forgot about uh, the Blues Traveler connection in this. So John Popper is like the yeah. the announcer at the, the bowling tournament. And I, when he came up, I was like, is that the dude from Blues Traveler? <laughs> um, and then they perform at the end. But and then also, like, you wouldn't know this unless you uh, watch professional bowling sometimes like I do. But the guys that they're bowling against in the tournament are like actually famous, well-known professional bowlers. I see. Which is a, <laughs> that, that, that was the perfect reaction. Uh, I see. I, I see. see. <laughs> okay, I see. Uh, <laughs> I see. You watch uh, ESPN at uh, 4 o'clock in the morning. No, I used to, and now it's all on YouTube. <laughs> watch yeah. it there. Uh, yeah, I'm basically... Um, I can't remember the dude's name, but the the character in Dodgeball that's really into the alternative sports. Oh yeah, um, I forget that yeah. dude's name. He's on Barry too. It's Steven something from anyway. Um, yeah, so I watch professional bowling and professional darts stuff like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> professional pool was a big one growing up. Oh anyway, yeah, that's pretty cool. Those like trick shots and whatnot. I meant like the actual like nine ball, but yeah, the trick shots were great too. I used to try to do those. And, uh, so, you know, I'd be like me and my friends would be fucking around trying to do it. And we'd like, you know, gash a hole in the felt on the table, like, trying <laughs> to jump it or whatever. And be like, Oh shit. Um, yeah, I, uh, I'm not much of a, a billiards shark. I, I wish I had a tape. Like that's, that's one of my goals in life is to own a pool table. I'm a simple man. <laughs> All I want is to own is to have room for a pool table and to own one. You'll get there. Maybe I'll like make a pool table that's also a bed, and uh, that way it, you know, double use. Yeah. Um, but yeah, kingpin. Left, uh, left ball corner pocket. Uh, <laughs> and you know, I just want to I want to mention this too because it it bothered me, but. The um, the connection, or I guess like the parody of indecent proposal. That's in Kingpin. I didn't catch it. Well, you know, indecent proposal. That I I don't know if I've ever seen. I mean, I know the movie, but I don't know if I've ever seen it. Well, you know, it's Woody Harrelson, right? And the Robert Redford, I think, offers him, you know, a million dollars to sleep with his wife, who's Demi Moore. And mm-hmm. agrees to it and all this stuff, drama unfolds. And uh, when they don't know what they're going to do in Kingpin, they're sitting at the bar in Vegas and they have, um, I, I'm, I can't remember anyone's name, but the comedic actor who is throwing the craps comes up and he's like, I'll give you a million dollars to spend the night with your friend here. And he has his like fantasy. And then it turns out he was just imagining it the whole time. Oh yeah, um, Was it uh, Chris Elliott? Yeah, Chris Elliott. Um, well, cabin boy himself, Chris Elliott. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was just strange kind of callback to that was just like, you're only doing that because your film stars, Woody Harrelson, who was also in that movie. Yeah. Um, 
interesting. Anyway, back back to the Amish stuff. I in <laughs> for uh and for richer or or poorer, it's kind of interesting because in movies like Wonderlust, usually the people seek out these communities. It seems like because they are, they're having some sort of crisis, sort of internally. But in mm-hmm. for richer or poorer, it's it's a crisis externally, <clears throat> where Tim Allen's character is wanted for for tax fraud or whatever, um, and so they flee, and that's sort of the 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 impetus for the whole film. So it was, it was nice. I think I think this is one of those films where it's like it has the right message. It's just not a very good movie because you you move from um, Tim Allen Christie Alley being just sort of the height of capitalist consumerism and tim allen wants to build uh, an amusement park based on the bible because it'll make a lot of money which you know which which those things exist yeah that, that's a thing in northern kentucky you can go do right now um and so you know they're, they're very they're just like the worst kind of people christy alley's very and her like little rich friends are very annoying and all she wants to do is like buy things and shop you know, women be shopping is kind of mm-hmm. the whole message there. And then Tim Allen is just this literally like looking at his model of his Bible themed amusement park with a big cigar and like, boys, we're going to make millions. Um, <laughs> and he has like all the stupid, like sharper image, Brookstone stuff in his office, like the massage chair and all that sort of shit. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of it's kind of interesting that at the end, the reason that there, well, I mean, it's not any big reveal, but the reason they're being, you know, pursued for tax fraud is because Newman has cheated them. Yes. Um, can't remember yeah, his so name it's, either. It's, it's almost like, uh, uh, Wayne Knight, I think is that guy. Yeah. Name. But, uh, it's almost like the movie is exonerating them, you know? And yeah. Like, and that's oh, kind of what I'm saying. They like, were, they actually weren't bad people, you know? Yeah. Like they, they were misguided and they, they were, you know, they, very caught up with consuming and they bought stupid shit and spent too much money, but they were at their heart. Good people, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. which is that part I'm not a, a big fan of, but I guess they needed some way to let them off the hook and return to quote unquote normal society. Yeah. Um, and the, the sort of deus ex machina of it, you know, the court scene at the end is just, it's just, they're just phoning it in. It, mm-hmm. They didn't even try to like come up with anything clever. Um, Dude, what just about uh, un, unwatchable? <laughs> what about uh, that's what we should name. We should start another podcast called Unwatchable. <laughs> what about um, Larry Miller, who's like the IRS? I have yeah, the cast up like, now, so I can remember. Ah, he opened fire in the middle of a yeah, busy he street. He literally carries around a fucking dirty, hairy like Magnum and is trying to blast this dude for tax fraud. Yeah, and that's this whole joke is like I'm the IRS. We can we can do whatever we want. That's such like an old, old time joke. It felt like, like just the well, comedy I mean, felt very stale. This movie stars Tim Allen. Mm-hmm. What what are you expecting? Well, that's the thing. It's like a, it it's a vehicle for aging comedians. So Tim mm-hmm. Allen and Christy Alley, who by this time in the mid '90s were just kind of, I don't know when Home Improvement ended, but. Like they weren't really big, that big of a name anymore. They're kind of coming down the backside of their careers. Well, there was one part that was utterly cringe inducing 
where I, I guess things are starting to pick back up for them. They're like getting into the swing of things uh, on the Amish farm and they're starting to, you know, be able to bear each other again. And there's a scene, I guess Tim Allen's character is like doing something with a horse, trying to get a horse to move a tree stump, I think. And it's like this big manly man thing he does. And the women are watching from the top of the barn. And then he does it like the horse pulls the stump. And so everyone's clapping for Tim Allen. And then it cuts to Kirstie Alley watching from the top of the barn. And she just like does a little shimmy for him, like a little sexy shimmy as if to like say like, oh, I'm I'm so horny for you because you're such a man. And it is so tone deaf and out of place. I just don't know how it made it in the movie. Well, that's, do, you remember, do you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. And it, that's kind of like Tim Allen's whole career, isn't it? Just like the manly man thing. I mean, that was the whole thing with Home Improvement, wasn't it? That he was like the manly man with the tools and the 12 sons or however many. Yeah, and, and just I, I kind of <laughs> the speaking of like weird tone deaf sort of like boomer humor shit when they hear the uh, Amish couple next door, like having sex and you hear the bed, like making noise. Mm -hmm. That was like a weird thing. That was a running theme throughout the movie (laughs) where they would hear it. And it was like, Oh, well thank God they're quick. I I think it would have been funnier if they were like kept up all night by the Amish doing it. That's funnier to me. (laughs) But, um, and then there's that scene where it reverses and it's after, I believe this whole like stump pulling thing. And then, and then they go and pull some stump. Um, and, and the Amish couple hears them in the other bedroom, like finally having sex and they're like, Oh, and then the old guy that comes to wake them up doesn't come in early. And when he does come in, he's like, good morning. And then leaves. It's such like a weird, but you know what though? It does kind of, it it reminds me a lot of the kind of neo Christian, uh, focus on marital horniness and how that's like, I remember you said that before where it's like, like in, in in you know current Christianity, it's like sex is terrible unless you're married, and then, then it's the best. you should be a porn star. Yeah, and then you should just be banging all the time <laughs> and talking about it in in your in your small group at church. Yeah. Yes. So that that part was just sort of, but uh, the obviously the kind of because it's the '90s, but also it's you know Tim Allen and Christy Alley and the movie's not really doesn't hold up well to a 2020 watching is is it christy alley or is it kirsty alley i don't think Kirstie? i've ever known christy um i don't know let me look it's oh it is kirsty kirsty it's k-i-r kirsty okay I've been, so i've been saying it wrong for most of my life <laughs> so nine times <laughs> yes well, she used to be like around in the nineties. Um, I think like Veronica's closet, was that the show she was on? Which I only knew because my, uh, grandmother never changed the TV from NBC. <laughs> I, uh, I didn't catch that one. I've heard of that show. What was, I referred to the show Mad About You the other day, and Jensie had never heard of it. I was like, how is that well, possible? It's not, well, Jensie's like 12 years old. <laughs> um, 
She's Ma- 27, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, but uh, yeah, mad about you. People remember mad about you. It, it's weird because I remember when I was growing up, uh, it seemed like mad about you was like a big deal. Like people really liked that show and no one ever yeah. mentions it now. Yeah, it's like maybe is it streaming anywhere. Bring back mad about you. Bring it back. Let's get mad about mad about you. That's our new podcast. Mm-hmm. Mad about mad about you. <laughs> the only thing I can, I can think of is the. Uh, um, Heem's line where he says, I'm on my hell and hell and hunt. But I, I don't, that, that's the only reference I can think of. Mm. Paul Reiser? Mm-hmm. Comic genius. Uh, so let's talk about Amish Paradise a little bit because we haven't really mentioned it yet. It, it ties in with all this and, and I, I like Weird Al. I feel like everybody likes Weird Al. I've never met anybody that doesn't like Weird Al. Um, and I remember when I was a kid and this song came out, it was like my favorite thing in the world for about six months. It was a big deal at my, uh, at my elementary school. Yeah. It was, it was a hot, hot ticket because, you know, gangsters paradise had come out before this and all of it, you know, based on the, what the Stevie wonder song, right? I don't know about this. What? How do you not know about this? Um, yeah, oh, you it's mean Pastime the, the Paradise. Music. Yeah, yeah, I'm talking about the music, right? So Pastime oh, Paradise yeah. by Stevie Wonder, and that becomes Gangster's Paradise by Coolio, and that becomes Amish Paradise by Weird Al, uh, which is a weird sort of postmodern sort of palimpsest where the song gets like progressively worse <laughs> as it as it moves on, or you know, like worse as far as like you know, quote unquote, serious art is concerned. Um, but yeah, the, the song, it's playing on a lot of the same kinds of ideas that you see in Kingpin and for richer or poorer, uh, which is that the Amish are just inherently weird and funny because they dress funny and they wear big hats and they don't have technology. So ha ha. Um, and so I'm not really sure, like what more I can say about that. Well, well, the question I want to pose is where did this come from all of a sudden in the nineties? You know what I'm saying? I think in one of these movies, there's a, I guess it was uh, for richer or poor. They, they referenced the movie witness, Mm -hmm. which was in 1985, but all of a sudden you had, you know, the sort of Amish joke has this cultural capital that, you know, as we've seen, several different sources are cashing in on. And it's just like, where did this come from? And and, and I don't really know. Maybe there's a more explicit, um, you know, obvious something that happened that I don't remember that, that made it more um, visible in the culture. But it seems to me it's surfacing as part of this trope we're talking about where – the the sort of excess of the 90s um, has us very anxious about our our culture and and you these movies like like the reality smashers we talked about last time and these are an expression of that anxiety of of not being authentic you know and so and so here let's take something real or authentic and measure ourselves against it and see how we come off looking. Yeah. 
also part of the of my theory. Hmm? No, go ahead. I would say part of my theory is that uh, the, the Amish is a community that is not going to fight back on these things. So you can kind of take them as the butt of the joke and not really worry about it because it's not like they're going to see your movie. Yeah. Or hear your, you know, your parody song, let alone sort of like grasp the concept of, of what a, what this weird Al's whole career has been, this kind of parody thing. Mm-hmm. Um, not that they're too stupid to do that. It's just, they don't care, right? It's sort of outside of, of their sort of it's, scope of being in the world. You could say outside or you could say beneath them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so it's, that's part of my sort of theory on it is that they're they're an easy target because they're a target that you don't have to worry about really offending anyone no one really seems to speak up on part on behalf of the amish that much but they're also a target who's uh you know the nature of their community problematizes the nature of the mainstream yeah. community yeah um which you know comparing furniture poor to um Pleasantville, I think, is is a useful way of or useful comparison uh, because in Pleasantville they just go with older American culture, sort of like fifties American culture as sort of this more morally pure touchstone, which is in a lot of ways more problematic because you know America in the fifties is is incredibly racist and incredibly sort of resistant to any sort of change. There's a lot of social inertia going on. Um, uh, so when you talk about or when you use the Amish and something like for richer for poor, it's sort of like, I don't know, it's like the contrasts are more stark maybe, but also maybe mm-hmm. there's a little bit, I don't know, it's like there's a little bit less at stake because people don't know. Did you notice that in the film that both Tim Allen and Kirstie Alley's character uh, knew what an ordnung was? They sort of like weirdly knew a lot about the Amish. I did not notice that. I don't. What is that? Ordnung they talk about. It's it's just sort of like the the order that you follow. Right. And they, oh. they keep saying like we're from a liberal Ordnung or, you know, yeah, whatever it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it was just weird to me that they, they just sort of wrote those characters having this pre-existing working knowledge of Amish culture. Like well, it's, I guess they live kind of close to it. Well, they, you know, they're in they New York, right? Upon it. I don't know. It, oh it, yeah, yeah. I guess they are. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I just that was just. A, I mean, it doesn't do me any good to poke holes in the plot of this movie. Like it's not, it's not <laughs> no, putting up much of a fight. What did you you text me? You know, after you watch it, like oh, I was like, I, I don't think fans. the Amish make or enjoy bluegrass music. And you're like, yeah, that's like, the only problem. <laughs> Other than that one aspect, pretty true to life, though. Right? Yeah. Here's here's a weird thing, Jensi and I noticed that bothered us. There's several times where they're having to sleep in kind of uncomfortable places. You know, the first night uh, they're like sleeping by the cows. Why do they feel like they have to lean up against the tree to sleep? It would be way more comfortable to sleep on the ground next to the tree. Yeah, and you're already and then, on the ground. You know, Kirstie Alley won't let him sleep in the bed once they get to the farm. And he feels like he has to sleep in a wooden rocking chair. It's like, get on the floor. And they sleep like, in separate bedrooms earlier in the film. As sort of, I, you right, know, that's yeah. 
that's yeah. not uncomfortable. It's just there's a big focus on sleeping arrangements. Seems like yeah, it's just like why why I just didn't understand why they felt when someone has to sleep not in a bed they have to be like sitting up. I mean, it's such a <laughs> it has nothing to do with the themes or anything. It's just a weird sort of uh, assumption being made. Well, sort of like on whoever was like. It's almost like if you if you're not experiencing some sort of outer strife, then you will sleep more comfortably both physically and mentally. Right. (laughs) So it's like they they get there and one of the first they go to their room in the Amish home and Tim Allen's character is like, oh, it's a small bed. Right. And that's what she's like, oh, you're going to you're not going to be sleeping in it, that sort of thing. And the idea is it's small because you're married and you love each other and it's fine. Um, and also the Amish are very, you know, they're not going to make a king size bed because that's, you know, flaunting your, I don't know, wealth, I guess, before God. Yeah, it's just not necessary. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not right. I mean, king size, king size beds, like they're, don't get me wrong. They're, they're pretty cool. They're, they're comfortable and all that, but they're completely unnecessary unless you're like seven feet tall or something. You don't really need a giant ass bed. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's my well, new position. I, I think, no big beds. I, I think uh, what you can see, you know, in thinking about the uh, like you said, the contrasts between the sort of mainstream world and the authentic world that these movies posit is that whatever the mainstream world is anxious about and unsure about will be sort of inversely reflected in the authenticity of the other world that is posited. So if Tim Allen's character is, you know, in this world of conspicuous consumption and luxury, the authentic world he goes to will not have any, you know, excess consumption and uh, there will be no luxuries. And if his work is completely disembodied in the the mainstream world, his work in the authentic world will be very bodily and physical. Um, and so you can sort of see where the writers or filmmakers or whoever uh, are directing your attention by that contrast you mentioned. Yeah, definitely. And and in uh, speaking of contrast, and this is where I, I kind of thought you were going, but the one of the ways you see that play out as far as you're saying whatever the mainstream world is nervous about in the this alternative you know way of life they're kind of they don't have the same kind of insecurity and a big part that mm-hmm. comes out in for richer or poorer and and for kingpin too sort of is in uh, sort of marriage and and just relationships between men and women in general they're both very extremely kind of heteronormative movies even though kingpin did throw in the uh oh no that wasn't even a gay joke that was a sheep fucking joke yeah i, I forgot about yeah. that um <laughs> so forget that that's a whole different thing yeah um, super progressive there oh yeah for sure um every farmer fucks a sheep i mean it's accepted but in for richer poorer that sort of marital strife becomes a big part of it and the amish don't have that because why right it's never really except for like they don't accept that as being something that is a possibility i guess 
Like you, you marry for life. Therefore, even if you don't get along, you have to get through it because what's the alternative? Um, whereas, you know, out in the real world, we have divorce and all this. So the movie really reinforces this idea that like work extra hard to make your marriage work, that sort of thing, which is a very kind of sort of outdated sort of thing. Now we have films like a marriage story that it shows like divorce is difficult, but sometimes it's sort of the best route for both people and all this sort of stuff. Um, whereas, well, in, well, I think, I think you could read that too as saying, uh, it, it, marriage in this sort of, you know, mainstream culture, you see in, in marriage story, you have, uh, you know, as in most Noah Baumbach movies, it's either Los Angeles or New York. It's and both so, in marriage stories. Yeah, both. And so you see that this world, this culture that they inhabit is, uh, is you were just talking about sort of compromise and, and working at making your marriage work. You see that the culture is much more uh, ar- arranged according to the needs of a man in a marriage um, to where, you know, if he, the Adam Driver's character, if he wants to do something, uh, uh, Scarlett Johansson's character sort of bends to his will and then um, he sort of follows up with empty promises like in the future to, you know, to compromise, but, but it's always abstract and in the future and then resentment builds up on her part and then ends in separation. Yeah. And in the divorce proceedings, the fact that the fact that the culture allows for that, you know, uh, gives uh, the man the freedom, you know, to just pack up and move to New York or to LA or wherever it is, um, without any real consequence because there's no tie to the place in the first place, um, that, that may be the seed of these larger, uh, marital problems. Yeah. And then, well, you also see it kind of, we're just going to talk about marriage story now, but you see it sort of flip (laughs) where in the divorce proceedings, uh, Scarlett Johansson's character. So, you know, the, the wife character, holds a lot of the cards right and this is kind of yeah it's it's this is a big thing that like dipshit men's rights activists will complain about is that like divorces are geared more toward you know giving the woman a favorable outcome so things like paying alimony or not having a prenuptial agreement or custody of a child Mm -hmm. which is a big deal in a marriage story so you know following the divorce adam driver becomes more mobile but at the same time it if he wants to stay in New York, it's sort of at the expense of losing out uh, time with his son and that sort of stuff. Well, um, in some ways, those laws exist as compensations for the reality of of what's just generally accepted as you know men's larger, uh, more freedom uh, or more yeah. autonomy in the culture, and so it has it has to be that way. Mm-hmm. Um, at least, uh, you know, as it stands now. Yeah, I was going to say, don't, uh, I hope it doesn't sound like I'm saying that that's, no. there's anything wrong with that. Like, it's, that's the way that it's set up for the reasons that you're saying that, you know, y- women are just in the culture at large, so to speak, at a great disadvantage in pretty much everything. So it's, it's, it's yeah, okay and, if and they can may, have this. There may be something wrong with it because we're speaking in such general terms. It's like, I mean, if you took this on a case by case basis, I'm sure there are uh, 
you know, cases where men get screwed over. Um, but there's an equal, if, uh, you know, probably way more cases, uh, in, in which women are getting screwed over. So I, you know, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't have kids. And a lot of it comes God. down to like the, the attorneys and you even see that yeah. kind of a marriage story where like the attorneys have their sort of own goals. <laughs> um, yeah. but yeah, I mean, that's a big complicated thing, but, but I think the, the heart of it that applies to what we were talking about before is this idea that they're just sort of these kind of societal kind of expectations for, for the roles that people play within a marriage, even though they've changed and evolved and there are many different sort of viewpoints on it. Um, there's still that sort of like base kind of old timey thing where the, you know, the man has certain sort of privileges that the, that the woman would not have or would not have access to. Um, Mm -hmm. and that's why things like alimony exist. Um, yeah. So that's my view on gender roles. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but, but I think you're right to point out that that is kind of a, a major theme of for richer or poorer. And, and even the, you know, as the title suggests, that is, yeah, which comes from about a, marriage about vows. Marriage. Yeah, that's the classic sort of marriage vow that you hear differently every time you go to a wedding, it seems. Um, mm-hmm. That's one of the cool things like getting married by a, basically a rent-a-priest is because I had no <laughs> idea what he was going to say. So I just kind of had to roll with it, <laughs> like pay attention. Um, so, yeah. I, I, uh, it, it's weird to me to think, <laughs> I, I, I'm glad I thought of this. I rented this movie. I rented for richer or poor at a video store in 2020 to watch it <laughs> for this podcast. I called, did you feel like you I called stepped out of a time video. machine? <laughs> yeah. I called family video and I said, I got a weird one for you. I was like, what are you looking for? And I said, 1997's For Richer or Poorer, starring Tim Allen. And it took him like four seconds. He's like, yep, we got it. We got a whole in cap of him. <laughs> I was like, what? Why? And it was in the favorites section. $1 five nights. God, what a perfect business model that so is. I was so surprised. I rented it from, uh, it, it, it kind of sucks because <laughs> you got $1 for five nights. I rented it off of Amazon. So it was like $4 for um, one night for one. Uh, well, for like however many 48, 48 hours, hours or whatever it is, 48 hours from the time you begin watching, um, yeah. which is it, the, it had a really good ratings on Amazon from what I remember. So well, that that's, that was my point is that this is, you know, now it seems like a uh, not even a five dollar movie you'd see at Walmart. It's it's less than that. It's just a totally forgotten thing. But I mean, I saw this movie when it came out. Um, like my parents rented it. We watched it when I was a kid. Um, and these, I mean, these things get stuck in your mind, and people remember it. And then all of a sudden, it has a decent rating. 23 years later. Yeah. You don't really think twice about it. You're just like, when I was a kid, that was good. Therefore it is still good now. Yeah. Which Uh, is, which is what happened with Kingpin. 
And then I oh, watched yeah. it and I was like, oh man. And not, just to, uh, not quite as funny as I thought. And to just think about, I don't know, like, I don't really know where I'm going with this idea, but it, it's interesting and I think useful in a lot of ways to, to watch these older films to see, and by older, I'm saying like in the 90s, which I keep saying the 90s like it wasn't that long ago. To me, it wasn't that long ago. But in reality, did I already say this on here that somebody on Twitter was saying that was talking about the strokes playing a Bernie Sanders rally in New Hampshire? Have I said this already? I don't think so. Um, so there was a tweet and it was saying that Bernie Sanders had the strokes play at this rally in New Hampshire or, you know, I guess his team did. I don't think he knows who the strokes are. And they play at this rally and their album, their first big album is this. It came out in, I think, like 2001 or something. So 19 years ago, roughly. Um, and I remember it when it came out and I was a Strokes fan, still like the Strokes, that sort of thing. Um, and this guy on Twitter said that Bernie Sanders using the Strokes, there's the same amount of time between their first album and that rally as there was when Bill Clinton used Fleetwood Mac's Don't Stop Thinking About Tomorrow in the mm. 90s in his rallies. Weird. And I was thinking like, fuck i'm old <laughs> like that yeah time just passes so much more quickly when you're older and remember that song like when i was a kid hearing that song and being like that's like old that's like old rock and now kids uh or you know young people these days hear the strokes play last night or something and they're like oh wow that's that's an oldie that's a golden oldie oldie but a goodie Ugh, just yeah I, I tell you when i felt old was when i saw uh the fresh prince on nick at night <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, young people now sort of watch stuff like that, it seems. There's a weird, like, because nostalgia or the way that we yeah. view nostalgia now sort of compressed everything. So they're aware of, like, fresh prints and stuff like that, it seems. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, I was going to tie that to, to film because seeing the way the way that films were made, sort of the ways in which they were acted and the way, specifically the way in which they were written and the Fairley Brothers movies are like a good example of this where the kinds of jokes they include are like if you did that in 2020 it would be either offensive or hacky or both and it wouldn't be funny at all it's not clever in the least right um but this was you know put into a, a you know major production in the 90s it's kind of yeah it, i mean that's just the nature of a film i guess so i'm not really saying anything that's that's worth saying but just seeing how things evolve. And so now when we see a movie that's bad, how we'll compare it is like, oh, well, that's like this movie looks like it or looks like or or is written like it came out in 1996 or something like that. Yeah. 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 And what were we just saying? Uh, oh, it's almost like the 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 comments you were referring to by James Howard Kunstler about architecture. And we were saying the bad architecture is bad because it is so caught up in the moment mm -hmm. and, and, and things that, you know, have staying power are not, they sort of transcend the moment. It doesn't mean it doesn't use the, you know, the language and the, uh, the settings of the moment. Cause how could you not? Um, but stories can be, uh, um, you know, can be set in the moment, but not be, of the moment, you know, in the world, but not of the world, uh, as 
<clears throat> Christians like to say. <laughs> um, but yeah, so there, there's a way a movie can be made in the 90s, but not be of the 90s. Yeah. And, I, and you know, that's just true of a lot of things. That counselor book, I was just thinking about it because in the beginning he mentions Savannah and just got back from, from Savannah, Georgia. And he mentions it because of the way it's laid out. And it's laid out with these parks every so often. Maybe I've even mentioned this on the podcast before. Um, and so it's a really beautiful city because they've maintained that kind of structure. And you, you know, you walk a block or two and there's a square that's just a park. And it's like a little mini park and it's really nice. And it's usually got some statue of some old racist white dude in the middle of it. And then you, <laughs> you walk a little bit farther and there's another one, right? And then eventually there's a, you know, all the stuff that's by the river. And it's just like a very, beautiful kind of highly photogenic just like nice city to walk around a lot of trees that sort of stuff so that's part of why i like it so much and that a lot of that architecture is not what we think of when we think of like the american city right it's and that's mm -hmm. what and, and it's kind of sucks because all of that sort of gets characterized as being kind of a like touristy it's a tourist town and that's why they keep it that way like Savannah, Charleston, South Carolina, those kinds of New Orleans sort somewhat. Right. Um, yeah. So it, it looks that way because people pay to come and see it because it looks that way. No one stops to think like, why are they paying to see this? It's because it's different from what they're used to. And it, it's in a lot of ways nicer than what they, I'm not saying start building every city. Like it's a, you know, old colonial city, but being thoughtful about it like that and building green spaces into, into places and, and, making sure that the trees don't all get sawed down for some stupid reason. And being thoughtful about those things is, is, is one way to make life in these urban spaces more bearable for first off and just more enjoyable. Well, I can't, I can't remember if it's James Howard Kunstler or Curtis white, or it's maybe in their conversation in, in that book I referred to earlier. One of them makes the point that, you know, of how absurd it is that we live in places where uh, where we used to vacation to and vice versa like it used to be people lived in you know most people lived in rural areas and if there was like a developed area a developed city that's where you know you you travel there to to see the sites or whatever and now it's like so you know most people live in cities and and we, the idea that we could like vacation to a forest is, uh, they're, they're arguing is a very strange concept. It's like, well, that's where we, we should live in these unique, what, what now seems unique to us is actually what used to be normal. Yeah. Yeah. That's just part of the, you know, how human life kind of flipped and you know maybe sometime in the future maybe it'll flip back or be forced to flip back some i can't imagine what kind of like impending force that we can't stop would force human life to change uh i don't know well i i can't nothing's coming to mind and it's interesting that uh and this is something that links you know i was talking about these countercultural communities and the alternative ways of life and all this kind of stuff um it seems to me like all of these highly communal systems and that, you know, they're communal, whereas mainstream life is individualistic. 
they're immoral, therefore mainstream life is immoral in some way. Uh, it seems like these communal systems, whether it be like hippies or new agey or the Amish or whatever, they only are held together by some sort of like very strong and resilient underlying belief system. Otherwise, what's the point, right? And it made me think like, well, yeah. the alternative to that is what holds mainstream society together? Like, what is the underlying belief system there? Um, it's and the American it's, dream. Yeah, it's it's the same bullshit that people have been bitching about for, you know, t- 250 years or whatever. It's, you know, it's yeah. capitalism, belief in the free market, consumerism, all that kind of shit. Like, that's that's part of the belief system, right? And people don't think about it in that sort of way because it's not... You know, we don't have, well, I don't know. I was going to say we don't have buildings where we go to worship it, but we do. Yeah, but they're just a, just just another building, you know? <laughs> yeah, that, that doesn't count. <laughs> right. Well, it's just, you know, you go to a major city, you're just as likely to stumble into a subway as you are a church, you know? You mean the restaurant? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, it's they're just among each other. There's no, there's nothing really to delineate what's sacred and what's not. It's all in this shithole city, anyway. You know, uh, it's I, I'm really interested in like the architecture of churches, and um, I definitely think, you know, they would put the. Uh, like in a in a village, like an old school village, if there's a church, you have the uh, steeple that sort of announces, you know, that 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 rises above every other building to yeah. sort of announce the ideology of this place. Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Right. Open it up. And see the people. Open the doors. See all the people. Um, but steeples are dwarfed by skyscrapers in cities. Um, yeah. as if to announce our ideology unless there's some sort of special ordinance in the city that keeps you from doing so right, right. so in, in, in you know savannah because they, they're sort of trying to maintain this historical status uh, they don't really have very many very high super high buildings right so the tallest buildings in town are like the cathedral of saint john the baptist that you've been down there and you probably saw it giant yeah. church um, and it's beautiful and you go there and it's like, you can't help but see it because it's like, like you're saying, it's, it's prominent. It's sort of given, uh, you know, place of pride in the city where you can, or pride of place, whatever the saying is, <laughs> where you can sort of see it, um, kind of no matter where you are. And if you're high up in a building, you see that first, right? So, you know, we were in this hotel for this conference and we're on the 15th floor of it and you look and you see, you know, the steeples of these old churches kind of rising up and it. You know, I, I don't I don't think the remedy for society is necessarily to make sure that the churches are the tallest thing. But but it is kind of it's much nicer to look at than if you're in people talk about going to New York and being like sort of impressed by the, the sort of scale of it and the skyscrapers. But one of the best kind of alternative views I've heard was when I saw the band Cake perform in uh, Cincinnati and John McRae, their lead singer, is very sort of like environmentally conscious and and countercultural in his own right and he was talking about walking through cincinnati he's like i was walking downtown today uh looking at all these buildings that are sort of rising up really tall sort of in in 
defiance of God. <laughs> and he's saying this like in the middle of the concert. Um, he's, he's like, they're just there all huge. And then, you know, they, on that tour, they were giving away a tree every night. So they would like pick an audience member and give them a tree and then they'd like plant the tree somewhere. Um, That's cool. So what was I talking about? Yeah. Yeah, I I don't, I don't want anyone to get the impression that we're, you know, uh, apologists for the Christian church. But I think what we're lamenting is the relegation of, you know, important things, the sort of spirit, the spirit of a community being relegated to a marginal place and the, uh, or the spirit being overtaken by, you know, sort of crass, uh, economics or economic yeah. rationalism. And you were the way you explained it when we were talking about counselor's book of these buildings being spiritless, I think is the, one of the best ways to describe it because that's how so many places, uh, not just cities, like small towns just feel spiritless. Right. So, and it doesn't spirit, spirit, tiness, spiritness, whatever you'd say it. Um, I guess just spirit doesn't have to be necessarily linked to history. It doesn't have to be some like, 300 year old city for you to feel like the place has spirit. It just has to have some sort of, it has to exist in some sort of form that doesn't make you just feel like it's everywhere else. Doesn't make you feel like there's a sort of oppressive blanket of sameness over everything. And, and we are in control of that. You know, we can make it, um, we're in control of the built spaces, uh, I was I was just talking to my friend. Uh, so on on this property where I live, my friends, you know, uh, are building, starting to uh, clear the space for their house where they're going to build. And they, you, I think Matt, you've been to where the uh, 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 fire pit was, mm-hmm. just sort of maybe twenty feet back into the woods there. Mm-hmm. And so they, they, they've had to clear these trees to where the fire pit is exposed now. It's like not in the woods anymore. And it was so strange for the first time I went out and I stood there by the fire pit and it feels like a completely different place. It's the exact same geographical point, but because it is no longer in the woods, you know, it's sort of exposed to, to the sunlight the experience of standing in that same geographical place is, is unrecognizable uh, in terms of what it was before. It is a different place. And and all that happened was maybe 30 trees were cut down. Um, And so it, it really made me think about how in control we are of the sort of uh, experiences we cater uh, or, or you could just say create by how we arrange the world, the spaces we have. And I think, uh, I think we don't put enough, it's kind of a basic idea, but I don't think we put enough responsibility on ourselves or we don't realize the responsibility that that is of just arranging a landscape, um, and making these kinds of massive changes. We just think of it in terms of like utilitarian, like, this is where the gas station goes. So cut all these trees down and, you know, grade it. So it's flat and all this kind of stuff. Um, 
but that's a huge responsibility to literally you're literally rearranging creation right so it's <laughs> yeah you're, and you're you're impacting everyone's sort of psychological experience of a place yeah and and you know it's so strange all that like i said all that happened was maybe 30 trees were cut down and and then it's like but put that on like a global scale and you think about the world as like you know it's just a jungle and then you look at how much of the earth is covered in asphalt and buildings now and it's like this has to have had just an absolutely devastating impact on on the human experience of the world uh, i mean obviously some good things in terms of like safety or whatever uh, have you know come about but in terms of a human being's understanding of her place in the world uh it, it, it's got to be very different based on what we have done to the world um, and, and even an understanding of what a human being is is radically altered by the state of the built world or the the magnitude of the built world yeah you know i i can't stand it when 30 trees are cut down uh, and, and my fire pit is slightly less pleasing uh, <laughs> and now and then just like look at new york city you know it's like the inverse of the biblical thing it's like and he saw that it was bad um there, there's a big the big thing around here now i was driving through town and saw all these signs in people's yards that said stop the quarry and I was like, what's the quarry? I didn't know about that. And apparently I'd missed this somehow, but they're building or there's a company that is trying to build a sort of large granite quarry um, in around town somewhere. And normally when something like that happens, it's sold as like this is industry coming in. It's a great di it's a great thing. It's going to create jobs. You know, we're going to be a granite city and all this sort of stuff. But everyone in Auburn and Opelika has, has sort of rallied together to say no we don't want that for a number of reasons so they're worried about uh, water pollution and the rivers nearby they're worried about air pollution um, a, a lot of different things going into it how it can release carcinogens all this sort of stuff so it, from what i can tell it's almost like a uniform resistance to it um, mm. and and you think about like there are few things i can imagine that would alter a landscape more than a, digging out a quarry right mm -hmm. sort of like a strip mine kind of um and it, it's been heartening to see that people are just like no fuck out of here with that we don't we don't want that like <laughs> the jobs would be nice but it, what we're giving up in return is not worth it and people often don't aren't willing to make that trade i guess and maybe if this yeah, was a poorer yeah, area it would be different but because you know because I guess it's not, or because people are just that dedicated to keeping things, uh, un, you know, molested that they're, they're willing to stand up to this. Yeah, that's a, a rarity. I mean, it's usually a, a, a very small minority voicing opposition to something like that. Yeah. And, you know, maybe, maybe this news story that I was looking at, uh, made the group sound bigger than it was, but I was driving through, you know, not, the richest part of town and all these yard signs were up. So, you know, it's, it's got something going behind it. Yeah. 
Um, and this all has a lot to do with 1996's Kingpin. <laughs> Directed oh. by the fairly and and I know going back to your question that you asked like forever ago at this point I don't really know why this was a th- kind of a, a short little moment in the nineties where there was th- this kind of two or three year span where the Amish jokes were just kind of flying around willy nilly um, yeah it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense um, yeah i just don't know where that meme came from i'm sure it is discoverable and if anyone who is listening knows somehow tell us because i'm very curious where like what gave uh you know amish life a the cultural capital to exist as a source of humor in the mainstream world and i Uh, I was looking at uh this book because i was just kind of like looking around to see if anybody had sort of written anything about this there is this book that i found that's um the amish in the american imagination by david weaker zercher or sorry david weaver zercher hyphenated last name published in 2001 and it's a little bit more of kind of like a historical overview it kind of talks about the amish throughout their existence in america but there is a whole chapter kind of the last chapter that is about the movie witness Mm. Um, and he doesn't really, as far as I could tell, doesn't really get into the sort of what we're talking about, this kind of comedic nineties take. Um, but he talks about sort of representing the Amish on film and and that sort of stuff. Um, but in a more kind of serious tone because witness is a pretty serious drama about a murder and all that. Um, but you know, like I said, I, I don't specifically know why the Amish, uh, sort of manifest as a source of humor, but it does feel in keeping with this larger trend of, you know, positing an authentic world against the mainstream world because we are anxious about our, you know, the, the state of our culture and the excess uh, that is such, you know, such a big part of our culture that the, the movies we talked about last time also fit into, uh, but, but then a, a whole lot more movies fit into that as well. Uh, and in different ways, I think, I think Austin powers does that with like the sixties as the authentic time. And, and you know, the, the first Austin powers ends up being this weird sort of argument, you know, sort of, uh, an apologist for the, for the 90s status quo. There's like a weird speech that Austin powers gives where he's like, you know, at the end, he's like, now we've got in the nineties, we've got uh, freedom and responsibility. It's a very groovy time. That's what he says, oh, which yeah. is so out of place. Uh, you know, in terms of, you know, just what a fuck around movie that is. Uh, but, but you see the, the in that movie, the nineties measuring themselves against the sixties and, and coming out with this sort of, uh, uh, in its own way, sort of a middle landscape, uh, you know, uh, co- I think we've talked about that concept. Um, uh, rich, uh, Richard Marx. Is that his name? Leo Marx. Yeah. Uh, Leo Marx's book. <laughs> Groucho Marx. Is that his name? Groucho. Um, yeah. Uh, th- that's just, like I said, just another example. I think, I don't know if we mentioned the, those Brady bunch movies that came out in the mid nineties where they kind of, you know, they're doing this nostalgia thing, but they're also, you know, they set the Brady's in the, 
in the cynical 90s uh, and they are still of the naive 70s television world uh, and it's doing a lot of similar things uh, measuring the contemporary culture against this sort of idyllic uh, you know preposterously innocent past uh, sim- similar in a lot of ways to Pleasantville yeah and they even in the Brady movies, from what I remember, because I actually enjoy those a great deal. And, and you know, maybe they suck now. But I, when I remember enjoying them in the past, they even play on that a lot. And that's sort of where most of the kind of like with the Amish stuff. A lot of the humor comes from them having this kind of naive innocence because they're of this. Uh, previous yeah, that's, time. that's the whole thing. Like yeah. the, the whole source of humor is like, oh, look how naive and innocent these people are. Which is to say, look how naive and innocent we were to, you know, to watch these characters sincerely in the 70s. And now look at where we are. And there's, you know, the scene, I think it's in the preview uh, where Greg Brady is getting his car robbed. And the guy says, this is a car, Jack. And the guy and Greg says, well, of course, this is a car. But my name's not Jack. It's Greg. And this is my sister, Marcia. Uh playing on that like like you said that innocence and naivete uh, against playing that against the sort of cynical reality of like you know what i guess are they in los angeles uh the, i think gosh, so. i can't remember yeah, i think it's uh, meant to be somewhere in california but like even in the midst of this like carjack it's a uh it's you know it's a source of humor but the the point is it's measuring the contemporary cynical reality against the former innocence. Do you remember? I think this isn't a very, a very Brady sequel. I think there, that's the one that has the kind of incest plot. I knew you were going there uh, because it, (laughs) yes, it stands. You know me. It's such a weird thing. Um, But it's almost, it's almost like it's like they're, they're, coming out of this innocence you know and they're realizing that they're like not related you know yeah so it's it's Uh, it's not it's incest in a legal sort well maybe i mean not legal sense but in the sense that they're legally related but they're not technically relatives yeah (laughs) technically (laughs) um but yeah that that, i just remember that because they share the attic as a room and they have the curtain in between it and they're just like it, it, as any, I guess. Well, I don't know. I'm not. I'm going to stop talking. Uh, but <laughs> but um, yeah, just want to mention that. Um, so in films like this, it seems like, and I, I don't think this is a, a strictly American thing, but we seem to have with every age, and now it's sort of like getting to where that these time periods get sort of shorter and shorter. But we have this anxiety over the the arc of history and whether or not we're sort of on the right side of history, if we're sort of learning the proper lessons from the past, like we've been saying, or if we're um, sort of getting deviating too much from the, whatever the right path might be. And so that's why you have a lot of anxiety now over it right now. It's sort of like summed up in this generational conflict of like the boomers and the Gen Xers and the millennials and the zoomers and we're all at each other's throats and we all agree the boomers suck and Gen X didn't do enough and the millennials are weird and, and 
you know, antisocial and the Zoomers are this whole new thing that we don't even understand yet and all this sort of stuff. Um, so we, we're very sort of obsessed and kind of always have been with periodizing things. And as someone coming out of like literary studies, like I, I get the irony of that because that's literary studies is all about periodization and all that sort of shit. Yeah. Um, but we were very obsessed with this. I don't have a cool word for it. Like, what was it? Timonosferatu. I don't have a cool word Tim- for it. Nosferatu. Um, but this an- sort of anxiety over, over these, you know, whether or not we're sort of in line with the arc of history. You know, the arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice is like the Nelson Mandela quote. And we're always worried about whether or not we're sort of on the right path. And I think that goes into the Austin Powers thing made me think of that where he's saying, you know, now in the nineties we have some of the similar things, but also we have this new responsibility and all this sort of shit. And every period wants to think that what they're doing in that moment is the correct thing as far Mm -hmm. as sort of the historical record is concerned. Um, And you know, that in terms of climate change, that is kind of dumb because we should be more, more kind of future looking and looking at the mistakes of the past to try to correct them. Looking back to maybe previous lifestyles, something like the Amish that is carbon neutral basically. Um, and, and sort of trying to learn the correct lessons from that instead of worrying about whether or not, you know, we're in line with the beliefs of this previous time. Well, that's not, that's no longer kind of relevant to me, right? It's kind of, Francis Fukuyama had the end of history and he was kind of, he's been roasted a lot since then. Um, but coming up on climate catastrophe, that could present an actual end of history. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's not worth worrying about if we're in line with some sort of tradition anymore. Right. And I, and I'm sure there's still films that are made that are like this, but I can't really think of one off the top of my head. That's been a kind of recent success. Yeah. Uh, you know, one one portrayal of Amish uh, comedy we we miss that I found in just a random Google was the movie Sex Drive. Did you ever see that? Oh, or, uh, the Rumspringa thing. Uh, Seth Green plays like the sarcastic Amish guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. That not a good movie. I do remember that though. That that's one of those like road trip movies and i, I mean both yeah. like there's a road trip and and it's like the movie road trip yeah yeah um anyway something i you said about austin powers made me think did did the monica Lewinsky scandal happen in 97 or 98 uh, that's a good question i, I can't know. i can't remember because it seems uh relevant to like that speech that austin powers gives about like responsibility and sexual <clears throat> liberation if if that movie came out post Lewinsky scandal it seems like a direct reference to it in some way I think if not it's uh you know that's interesting according too. to Wikipedia it came to light in 98 okay so that the movie was you know had to have been written it came out in 97 so it was probably written in 96 or so can you imagine uh, like just thinking about what a big deal that was back then. And you know, this is a lot of people made this kind of point, but now it's like, I wish all the president did was get a blow job, you know, like that's, ugh. yeah. Well, he also bombed several nations. <laughs> that's true. They all have. Um, 
that was something it that was, I was a different time about. uh somebody at the conference said something about that was like relating war criminality they were talking about somebody gave a, a paper on um syrian women who had been in prison and this kind of art they're producing it was a really kind of fascinating uh presentation and the person had mentioned Bashar, Bashar, Bashir, I can't pronounce his name. Talking about Assad being a war criminal. Racist. Um, no, I just I get tongue-tied. But talking about him being a, a war criminal and somebody in the audience uh, in the question portion uh, was talking about, well, you know, you can't, it's, yeah, he's a war criminal, but if by those metrics, you know, you can include a lot of world leaders um and they were sort of hinting of like well trump uh and i didn't say this but in my head i'm like i think most u.s presidents have been war criminals um certainly in in the last 30 years yeah um and you know the things like the the bush administration the the w bush administration uh putting in that clause that says if any american is ever prosecuted in the hague the united states will invade the netherlands (laughs) you know it's a simplification but that's basically what it is like if you ever try to to prosecute us for war crimes we'll just bomb your country they also passed the uh, i think it was called the national defense authorization act where if you uh are suspect like reasonably suspected of uh ties to terrorist organizations all you know like you're denied due process and uh Oh no, that was Obama. That was that was passed under Obama. Never yeah. mind. Well, I mean, we have either way indefinite detention, right? People in Guantanamo yeah. and different places. Uh, that came up too. Is that you know we live in prison world, and when it comes to political, you know, the Patriot Act just fucked everybody over, <laughs> except for basically like, we Raytheon. need to all be Amish except have cooler clothes. Yeah, the, colors, and that, that's basically that's basically the conclusion in for richer or poorer, right? Just we should be like the Amish, but still have like cool clothes and like playstations and cars. Mm-hmm. Like we should have all that, but we should be more like the Amish. We should live on farms, but not have to work. Yes, we shouldn't get up so early. <laughs> Maybe the only part of that movie I legitimately laughed at was the old man waking them up with an axe every morning. Uh, I don't know if I, I don't know if I legitimately laughed at any of it. I, I I laughed at it because it was such an old, like an old timey, like almost a Rodney Dangerfield joke is when they get to the town and he sees the sign and it says intercourse and he goes, not lately. <laughs> and I was like, ha. Um, oh, I just yeah. laughing, thinking about them getting to a town that's called reverse cowgirl, Pennsylvania. <laughs> oh goodness but that's i mean well, that's pretty much all i got to say now that's all that's all i got a bleep, bleep, i, I bleep, realized all, like folks. 45 minutes ago that we have not talked about what we're gonna uh do next week no yeah i i kind of i thought about it a minute ago and wrote something down so what i think we should i mean we should do this movie eventually anyway whether or not we do it next week is, is we'll talk about it right now i guess um is parasite yeah, I think we should do the the presidential special, the uh, parasite gone with the wind combo. 
Yeah. Uh, I love that in, that's the movie in, he picked. In reference to Trump's tweet, if you're not following us, Trump tweeted uh, he didn't understand why we gave the uh, Best Picture Award to uh, a South Korean film and we should bring back movies like Gone with the Wind. What, what he really meant is like that would require bringing back slavery and that's what he's <laughs> really getting at. Um, yeah. Yeah, that was that was such like a perfect like tone deaf dumbass movie I, to compare to Parasite. I, th- I think someone said uh, uh, the production company that made Parasite responded on Twitter and they said something like, "Oh, it makes sense. He can't read the subtitles." <laughs> ha, got him. <laughs> um, no, but do you want to do Parasite? I've already seen I it. Def- you- yeah, let's, I'll watch let's it again. It. I, I still haven't seen it, and I, 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 I've been remiss in not watching yeah, it. It's legitimately fantastic. It's one of those movies where it, it was very hyped up. And, you know, we love Bong Joon-ho. We, we did yeah. a whole episode on him, and this will be just sort of an extension of that. Um, but it was so hyped up, I was kind of worried it wasn't going to be that good. And then I watched it, and no, it, it's it's that good. <laughs> Yeah, let's do it. And and I, I have gone with the wind on VHS, so I'll probably take a look <laughs> at it just for reference, but no pressure. The, how we'll do this is you you mail me the second tape, right? Because it's two tapes. <laughs> and then we'll switch. I'll mail it back. Okay. Um, yeah, so let's next week we'll how do... Much, how much gas we can burn for you to watch <laughs> Gone with the Wind. Yeah, that's funny. Uh, so next week we'll do Parasite, which is Bong Joon-ho from last year. Won the best picture. It's all the rage right now. 